Wealth of Mainz, Father in Christ and most illustrious Prince, forgive me that I should dare to write to you. I make bold because it is my duty to serve you and to warn you of the crooked practices of those who claim to represent your grace. of indulgences, but of the gospel. Forward this to Rome. Christians are to be taught that he who gives to the poor or lends to the needy does a better deed than he who buys indulgences. If the Pope can empty purgatory, why would he not do so out of love rather than for money? My God, who is this Martin Luther? Fritz? What? Dr. Luther wanted everyone to see that. And everyone will. Good people of Magdeburg, take hold of the raft while you still can. So much grace for so little coin. One-fifth of the usual take. How will you explain this to Rome? This drunken little German monk is intoxicated with himself. Sober him. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. Uh, I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, it's just so good. I'm going to say this for those of you who are in the room here in West Des Moines. How good is it to have the choir back? I mean, it's just great to, to kind of have that step. That's just awesome. Um, another, another sign of uh, hope and movement in a good direction. So praise God for that. And how good is it that um, in the midst of this pandemic, we have been able to broadcast all our services uh, to different campuses. Hello to you and local sites. Hello to you and anybody who's watching online around the world. Uh, we hear from people. We've received letters from all sorts of places. I mean, Australia and Germany and Alabama and Mississippi, we're big in the south now, I don't know how that happened, and Oregon and, and Alaska, uh, somebody who grew up in the same town where my parents grew up in Alaska, it, it's, it, but didn't know that. It's just crazy the way God moves, we could be one church in thousands of locations when we worship together, and folks, please hear my heart on that, that is 100% a God thing. It's not what we're doing, it's what God is doing and how desperate people are for God's word and how they need to know about God's amazing grace, which takes us right back to that opening clip from the movie Luther. Today is October 31st, most of us think of that as Halloween, which really is just All Hallows' Eve. It's the Eve before All Saints' Day, and we'll focus on that a little bit more next week, All Saints' Day. But on October 31st, 504 years ago today, the world changed. Because a German Catholic monk named Martin Luther went to the castle church door in what is now Germany and nailed his 95 theses to that door, which is kind of like taking out a full-page ad in the New York Times. And in so doing, he really started the whole Protestant Reformation. He was trying to reform. And to be clear, let's say this right up front, the Roman Catholic Church has reformed itself many times over since then. We're talking about the corruption in the Catholic Church in the 1500s. 
It isn't to say that there isn't some dark spot still in any humanly kind of human gathering, any church, any organization, that there aren't some flaws, that there aren't some imperfections. But we're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church of today nearly so much as we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church of the 1500s. It was corrupt. It was um, theologically upside down. It was misleading people. It was pushing people away from the salvation that God offers freely by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and was pushing them down a pathway that wasn't good for their souls, wasn't good for their pocketbooks, wasn't good for their lives, wasn't good for their salvation. And this humble monk who was brilliant and driven had a, um, a mission that God gave him and he embraced it fully. A little bit more about the rest of the story of Luther, a, a timeline, if you will. In 1505, Luther was content and happy as a law school student and a very uh, top-of-the-class law school student. His father wanted him to be a lawyer. He wanted to be a lawyer. All his friends thought he should be a lawyer. He had that kind of a mind, and he, so he pushed down that road, and he was doing great. He was on his way to earning his degree and starting to practice law, but something happened on the way to... Um, graduation, if you will. Luther was out in a field and a big thunderstorm hit. Long story short, he made a deal with God. If you somehow allow me to live through this thunderstorm, I mean, the lightning just hit so close to him. If you allow me to live through this thunderstorm, I will dedicate my life to you. It's not that Luther didn't believe in God already. He did. It's just that he was the kind of Christian who believed in God, but wasn't necessarily living for God. But that all changed on that fateful day in 1505 when Luther kept his promise because obviously God spared his life. And so Luther quit abruptly law school, even though he had his whole life in front of him and he was doing great. He quit law school, went across the street to the monastery and became a Roman Catholic monk on his way to the priesthood. Because he was such a gunner, he, he uh, went through all of that in two years, and he didn't just want to be a monk and a priest, he wanted to be the best one. He wanted to know the Bible better than anybody else, he was again top of his class, he wanted to do monk-like things, not only were, there, were they studying and praying and singing their monk-like uh, kind of worship songs, but they were also doing manual labor. It was, he was part of a monastery that believed that physical labor is good for the soul, that it kind of cleans you out. If you love gardening, you know how that feels. When you're done gardening, you just feel refreshed. If you love yard work, it could be the same thing. If you don't love those things, you're like, no, that's the opposite of refreshing for me. <laughs> for this monastery, they thought this was good for you. So Luther would wash the floors, and he'd try to make sure his floors were cleaner than any of the other monks. He would take care of his fish pond, and he'd try to make sure his fish were the better, you know, were healthier than all the other fish ponds, and his water was cleaner. And it, it was Luther. It's the way he approached life, which fit perfectly with what he was taught about his Christian faith growing up. If you're good enough, if you're kind enough, if you worship enough, if you pray enough, if you serve enough, if you go on missions enough, if you give enough, you can earn favor with God. You can stand right before a holy God based on your performance, based on the religious things that you do. And the list can go on and on and on and on. If you figure out your spiritual gifts, if you practice the spiritual disciplines, if you do all these things, if you do these things good enough, if you're nice enough, if you're kind enough, then you're going to not only get into heaven, but you'll be blessed by God now. God will love you if you can, here's, here's this word love, God will love you, here's this, this altar or this table, and so the idea is you can get closer and closer to God 
the, the better your report card is on these kinds of things. The better you do here, the, the more you're going to earn God's favor. And not only in this life, but for salvation too. Heaven's door is open by your performance, your ability to, to accelerate and ascend as a Christian. And Luther, man, he loved that. He embraced it. He's like, this is how I live. I'm trying to be top of the class. I want to be a top of the class Christian. I want to be the best priest in all of Germany. So he dedicated himself to that. Five years later, in 1510, now an ordained priest in the Roman Catholic Church, Luther went to Rome on a mission, and he was passionate about this. He had heard and read and studied about this place called the Scala Sancta, which is in Rome, but legend has it used to be in Jerusalem, was the actual stairway, legend had it, that Jesus ascended on his way to uh, Pilate's Praetorium, Pontius Pilate's Praetorium, where he was put on trial by Pilate before he was crucified on the cross. So these are holy steps, was what Luther was taught. And if you're a good enough monk, if you're a good enough priest, if you're a good enough Christian, you would come to these steps and you would work your way up. You would work your way up to the top. So we've got some steps here from, from where I preach. Although the architect's a member of the church and he says, you're too tall. So when he built the church, he went two steps down. He says, now when you're preaching, you won't tower over everybody so much. <laughs> Just a little fun tidbit for, for those of you who are here. So Luther started at the bottom step of the Scala Sancta and he followed the ritual. He followed what he was taught. I'll, I'll pray a bunch of Our Fathers, some Hail Marys. Uh, I'll go through the, the ritual and then I'll, I'll move up to the, to the second step, and I'll, and I'll do it again. Pray the Our Fathers, the, the Hail Marys, uh, the, the other prayers, and then I'll go up to the next step, and the next step, and the next step, and the next step, and the next step, until I can get God's love, until I can earn God's favor. The idea was, if you did this, you could pray somebody into heaven. Maybe even yourself. Luther was disillusioned, and disappointed when he made it to the top step. Because he had a moment of, you know, honesty, authenticity. He said, truth be told, I don't feel any different at this top step than I did on the bottom. I don't feel any closer to God. And that's not to say that, that praying through something isn't going to be good for you, isn't going to help you feel closer to God. But in Luther's case, he didn't. And he's famously quoted as saying, who knows if it makes any difference? Who knows if by doing this somehow I earn God's favor or God's salvation for myself or, or for a loved one who died? Who, who knows if it makes any difference? Because the problem Luther was developing was the deeper he got into the study of God's word, and he went deep. He, became, he earned his doctorate in 1512 in biblical studies, spent most of the rest of his life as a professor of biblical um, interpretation. And so he knew the scriptures inside and out. And the deeper he got into it, the more he realized this unreconcilable distinction between what he'd been taught by the church and what the church practiced and what the Bible said. And it was no small distinction. It was, it was massive. It was different. It, it, a massive difference. The church taught that you had to do these things to get into heaven, but of course... There's this other rather important story that is really the central story of the whole Bible, which is summed up in John 3.16, which Luther called the Bible in a nutshell. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that if you just believe in him, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. It has nothing to do with you. Turn to the person next to you, wherever you are, whatever campus or local site, online, wherever you are, and say, it's not about you. It's not at all about you. Your salvation isn't about you. This is such an important point. This is a freeing point. When Luther finally got this, when this point overwhelmed him so much, he says, I just can't do it anymore. I can no longer pretend that what the church teaches is what the Bible says. I'm not going to go through the motions. The steps up the, up the stairway aren't enough for me. And so Luther said, no more of this Jesus plus kind of religion where it's all about us ascending to God and earning God's love at his altar. We do the right things and, you know, yeah, I'll scratch your back, God, you scratch mine. We'll cut a little deal, which is sort of how Luther started, right? I'll cut a deal with you, God. You save me from the storm and I'll, I'll live for you. There might be all sorts of reasons you came to worship today and some of them might be great. Some of them might not be the, the most righteous of motivations. Maybe your spouse dragged you here. Maybe you're here because you had to come. Maybe you're here because you felt guilted or forced or, or, or it's an obligation or you're just going through the motions. God could use that. God could use that. It's no accident that you're here. God has you here and doesn't really, you know, get too anxious about, uh, about the motivations or the reasons. God can use that in the same way he used it for Luther. Luther was living his faith this way. It's all about me and what I do and what he discovered in the scriptures. What is all about God and what he does for us. To put it another way, Luther realized that what the church taught was putting the cart... Please have grace for me. I'm not an art major, okay? That's the cart, and this is going to be the really tricky part. Yeah, the horse, exactly. Um, there's the body, there's the ear, there's the tail, there's the leg. That is so, that's the worst horse ever. I don't even, there, is that bad? I don't know. Look, it's Secretariat. That's amazing. Luther realized the church was putting the cart before the horse, and he said, we're not going to get anywhere this way. If it starts with us and ends with us and it's all about us, we're never going to get where we want to go. Heaven is closed because what Luther realized, and this tormented him, I'm not good enough. I'm the number one monk in my monastery. I got my doctorate in biblical studies faster than almost anybody in German history. I'm the most popular professor in, 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 in this university, Wittenberg. It's not enough. I'm a sinner. Even though I believe I'm still not there. I, I, I'm not going to... If this is what I have to do to get to God, to earn God's love, to get salvation, to get heaven, if this is what I have to do, I have no hope. So we call ourselves Lutheran Church of Hope. Named after Luther, not because we worship Luther. Luther would cringe at the idea. But because we affiliate with this guy who pointed the whole world to Jesus Christ. Time Magazine said that Martin Luther was one of the top three or four, this was back at the turn of the millennium, one of the three or four most influential human beings on the face of the earth over the last 1,000 years. 
Because he didn't just start the Lutheran. In fact, Luther had no idea the Lutheran church would start. He died before it was started. He was trying to reform the church he loved. That only happened later. Luther, um, Luther lived his life in such a way, not perfectly. He was filled with sin. He got really curmudgeon when he got older, probably drank too much beer. I, I don't know what it was because he always he wrote a lot about all those things and said some things uh, about ethnic groups, Jewish people that are just absolutely inexcusable. Later in his life, when he was starting to kind of lose his mind, we don't worship Luther, but we worship the God that Luther pointed us to. That's where our hope comes from, Lutheran Church of Hope. Our hope is not in Martin Luther. So I've got the Luther bobblehead here today because, you know, it's family worship and the kids are here and everything. So here's Martin Luther, and if Luther thought that we were worshiping him as Lutheran Church of Hope, he'd say, no, 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 don't do that. But worship the Jesus I point you to, yes. Now that's the corniest kind of illustration I've given in a long time, but you're going to have a hard time forgetting it. <laughs> worship Jesus, yes. Am I stuck in your brain for a while? Yes, I am. I'm Martin Luther, I'm a bobblehead. You're going to be like, I didn't see that one coming. Well, that's why I did it. So back to this chart. When we put the horse before the cart... And we start with what God has done instead of what we do. Here's what we do over here. When we focus on this and cancel the plus sign, it's going to change everything for you. It's not going to just change your faith. It's going to change the way you live. You're going to experience a freedom like you've never experienced before. This was Luther's conversion. And it wasn't because, you know, he came up with a theology. It's because he read Romans. Uh, for example, Romans 1.17, which was a pivotal verse for Lutheran. You are justified before a holy God by faith. This is justification. This is not. This is sanctification. This is what we do as a natural response to these things. It's not that we don't teach about these things. It's not that we don't talk about these things. It's not that we don't strive to do these things. We just don't do these things because we think they're going to get us this. God's love. We do these things because God loves us. It's a natural response. Because God loves you, because you're saved, because death is no longer how your story is going to end, because sin is no longer how your story is going to end, because darkness is not the, the final word in your life. Light is, grace is, salvation is. Not because of your performance, but because, what of, because of what God has done. My goodness, if you really think about what that means, it changes everything. It's absolutely overwhelming. You're like, I guess I'm in. I mean, I, I don't even have to guess. I'm confident. I have the blessed assurance that I'm in. I'm in because of what God has done, not what I do. Now I do these things because, well, my whole life has been changed. I want to learn how to pray. I want to learn how to, the Bible. I, I want to learn how to serve. I want to use my gifts for the glory of God. I want to be a part of the church. I want to come to worship because I get to, not because I got to. That's going to change everything too. Now you're going to start living the life your maker made you to live. <laughs> And you won't be happy until you do. I mean, it just makes sense. If you don't live the life your creator created you to live, how could you be full? How could you be satisfied? You're just faking it or you're just pushing away or, or trying to find a, a different thing of, of who you are. You aren't embracing who you are. God made you and he made you to know that he loves you. And it has nothing to do with you. 
other than he made you and he chooses to love you. Luther nailed this to the door of the Wittenberg Church in 1517 called the 95 Theses. And it, he did it for the sake of debate. He did it for the sake of conversation. He wanted to open it up. He wanted to say, as a Bible teacher, we need to get back to the Bible. And it caused a firestorm. The printing press came out at the same time, so everybody started reading it. Four years later, Luther was brought to trial. What Luther was really against in his 95 Theses was the selling of indulgences. The Catholic Church would say, come in for confession, confess your sins. And um, after you confess them, we're going to tell you, in addition to your confession, if you would just give us an offering, and we'll tell you how much that offering is. And we're going to use that to build our big cathedrals that you can still go visit in Europe. We're going to take your money in, in corrupt ways by telling you you have to buy your way into heaven. You have to buy your way into God's favor. This happens manipulatively when churches try to tell you you have to give a certain amount to really be a really good Christian. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we tithe as a response to God's grace. The Bible says we give and we do all these other things too as a response to God's grace. Not in order to earn God's forgiveness and grace. We do it because we've received it. We do it because it's blessed us. Then the Catholic Church got even more corrupt. In 1515, they didn't just sell indulgences. They said, you know what? We're not even going to fake it anymore. You don't even have to confess your sins anymore. Just come and give us some money. We'll tell you how much you need to give us in order to make sure that you're going to get into heaven or to make sure that your dead loved ones are going to get into heaven. Just tell, just tell us who you want to get in. We'll give you a letter, an indulgence, a letter of indulgence that's sealed by the Pope himself and we'll give that to you. And on that indulgence it will say you are saved or your loved one is saved and it just comes to you for a price. I mean, what better to spend your money on, right, than to make sure people get saved? Luther said, atrocious. This is scandalous. We, we can't do this. And so he nailed the 95 Theses to the door to that effect. We cannot justify this with God's word, this behavior, this approach, this activity. Four years later, he was brought to trial by the church, which had unbelievable levels of power. They were um, in cahoots with princes and the Roman emperor. I mean, they had political power, not just spiritual power, religious power. They took him before trial, threatening his life, and they said, Luther, you must recant. You must take it back. You're standing up against the authority of the church. We'll defrock you. We'll execute you if we have to. We have a track record for this. If you'll please notice 100 years ago, Johann Hus. So Luther knew what he was up against, and he was asked, will you recant? And Luther famously said, unless you can convince me through Scripture, not through your traditions, not through your popes, not through your council of bishops, unless you can convince me through Scripture, through God's word, that what I'm saying isn't true, unless you can convince me in Scripture that your indulgences are of God, unless you can convince me that the way we get right with God's love is we have to earn it, we have to work our way up, unless you can do that, I will not and I cannot recant. Here I stand. God help me. From that moment on, Luther's friends kidnapped him. They sent him to a castle called Wartburg, and there he translated the Bible into the, from Latin into everyday languages of the peasants, into, into German. That was one of the problems. The Catholic Church hid the truth of God's word from ordinary people because they were the only ones who could translate it. The, the, the Germans didn't know how to translate Latin or Greek or Hebrew. 
And those were the only copies of the Bible available. A lot of them were illiterate and couldn't read. Luther translates it into the language that they know so that somebody who's literate in their village or community can read it to them. Because once you know God's word, it changes everything. I'm also going to add just on the timeline, there's, there's much more to this story, but I've only got one sermon, that in 1525, Martin Luther married Kate. That was the first time that a Catholic priest had been married in a long, long time. And if he hadn't done that, I wouldn't be a pastor. So here we are. Luther had influence, right? It was God's word that motivated this. It wasn't Luther. It was God's word. Luther just found what God's word says and made it available to the masses and communicated it with passion, even if it meant giving up his own life. One of the passages in scripture that really inspired Luther was the story that I want you to think about for the rest of the sermon, Matthew chapter 9. Jesus said something radical to Matthew. It doesn't look that radical when you see it on the screen. Follow me and be my disciple. We're in the midst of the sermon series called Say What? Making Sense of Jesus' Most Shocking Statements. And going back a screen, this doesn't seem like the most shocking statement, does it? Why wouldn't Jesus come up to Matthew? I mean, the first book of the New Testament is Matthew. Matthew wrote that. So Jesus must have known that Matthew's a super religious guy. He's, he's all in with God. And so he says, Matthew, follow me and my, be my disciple. There's nothing shocking about that until you realize the context of Matthew 9. In the context of Matthew's life, Matthew was a tax collector. It was already somewhat scandalous enough that Jesus didn't go into the temples or the synagogues to find rabbis or priests or Pharisees or religious scribes to be his followers. He went to the Sea of Galilee and found fishermen like Peter and James and John and Andrew. That was already kind of shocking. But for him to go into a town square where Matthew lived, you've got to understand something about tax collectors back then. Today, tax collectors are wonderful people. Back then, tax collectors had a well-earned reputation for being thieves, for being corrupt, the kind of people who betrayed themselves. Matthew was Jewish, but he sold out, absolutely sold out for money because the tax collector in any Jewish town in Jesus' day was the wealthiest Jewish person in that town, had the nicest house, the biggest house, the most money, the highest salary, the biggest income. Because Rome made sure they took care of the Jewish tax collector in each village. So Rome loved Matthew, and Matthew's tax collector buddies loved Matthew, and the other, as Matthew's gospel says in Matthew 9, disreputable sinners that Matthew hung out with loved Matthew. That was his crowd, right? Everybody else hated Matthew, including Jesus' disciples. They knew his type. They knew what he was about. They knew that, they, that he would try to steal their money, what little they had, in order to line his own rich pockets so he could live in an even more luxury. They knew what was going on. And so when Jesus said this to Matthew, it was scandalous to his disciples. It was scandalous to the religious leaders, the temple priests and the Pharisees. Follow and be my disciple. you got to be kidding me, Jesus. Don't you know who this is? Jesus knows exactly who it is, which has a lot to say about who's welcome in this church and who's welcome in God's kingdom. It's shocking. Take a look. Next. 
You're good at something. You found a way to make a living doing it. It's that simple. Must be nice to live in a world so simply ordered. We live in the same world, man. Matthew. Matthew, son of Alpheus. Yes. Follow me. Me? <laughs> yes, you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh. What are you doing? You want me to join you? Keep moving, street preacher. Do you have any idea what this guy has done? Do you even know him? Yes. Listen, I said to... What are you doing? Where do you think you're going, guys? Let me go. Have you lost your mind? You have money. Quintus protects you. No Jew lives as good as you. You're gonna throw it all away. Yes. I don't get it. You didn't get it when I chose you either. But this is different. I'm not a tax collector. Get used to different. I'm glad we passed by your booth today, Matthew. Yes. Shall we? We have a celebration to prepare for. You will regret this, Matthew. What's the tablet for? I grabbed it without thinking. You can put it back. No, no, keep it. You may yet find use for it. Where are we going? A dinner party. I'm not welcome at dinner parties. Well, that's not going to be a problem tonight. You're the host. There's just so much about that conversation that I love. It's life-changing for Matthew, but it's also kind of world-changing for his followers. Who, who does God welcome into his kingdom? I think a lot of times the temptation is to think the circle, you know, it's pretty big. It's, it's church-type people, right? And, and maybe we have a stereotype of what church people look like, how they talk, uh, the way they live, the, the, the way they do things. But Jesus comes along in this story and makes it very clear, your circle is way too small. It needs to get way bigger. It includes people like Matthew. It includes people who are notorious sinners, as Matthew's gospel says. That's who's welcome in my kingdom. It's for anybody who receives my love. That's putting the horse before the cart. And then inspired by that, it changes us. Jesus doesn't bless sin. He doesn't want us to stay there. He wants to transform us. But the only thing powerful enough to do that, the only thing power is the same thing as powerful enough to save our souls for eternity, to save our lives for eternity. 
It's grace. It's God's love coming to us. It's Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his victory over death and the resurrection. The other thing that I think is so intriguing about this story, and I don't want you to miss, is Matthew. Why did he quit his job? Why did he give up his big salary? Why why did he give up everything that he knew? In order to immediately, I mean, it's not like Matthew's like, give me a week to think about it. Let let me sort this out a little bit in my head. He had probably, he's a smart guy, Matthew, he probably had noticed that Jesus was teaching and preaching in his town and, and wondered about him, but probably never thought he'd be included. Because the world taught Matthew, you don't belong with us. You ever get in a situation in life where you know you don't belong? My wife and I were on vacation a couple of weeks ago. We went to see our granddaughter, Addison, and then... Uh, we went to a, a place that had um, a beach and water. My, my wife loves that. And we got there to our hotel. And when we got there, we were walking from our room. It wasn't that fancy, but we're walking from our room down to the beach. And as we're going down toward the beach, you go through this hallway in, in the hotel. And I realized, I don't belong here in this hotel. That's the ceiling. And the reason I found out the ceiling was too low is I bopped my head on the fire alarm the first time through. And Sally thought that was so funny. She said, let me take a picture. (laughs) There's just some places where you know you don't belong, where you know you don't fit in. This church isn't one of them. You belong here. God doesn't have you here by accident today. You belong in his kingdom. Everybody who hears the message of my love and receives it gets this gift. Come on, Zach, let's go for a walk. You don't have to work your way up to the altar of God in order to find his love. God brings his love straight to you. I know, two corny examples in one sermon, but you're going to have a really hard time forgetting this one because I'm changing your whole perspective on a sermon. God brings his love straight to you, to you, to every single, even you. I mean, come on, a bass player for crying out loud. God brings brings his love to those of you who are feeling the weight of guilt and sin and shame. God loves you. This is the only thing big enough to change your life. God loves you. It's the most important part of any sermon I'll ever preach. It started the whole Protestant Reformation, which Time Magazine says was one of the most influential moments in the last 1,000 years, when people realized God loves me. Not just the person sitting next to you, you. Even the people over here who I sometimes wonder about. No, I I don't. (laughs) God loves you. God loves all of you. Every single one of you. God loves you. He loves you. It's for you. And it's a life changer. Live for it. God loves every single one of you. Even the people in the bleachers. Left field, God loves you. God loves you. We got to go, Zach. I'm running out of time. I said 35 minutes or under. I've got 23 seconds. God loves you. God loves you. And God loves you at every campus and local site and online. Everybody turn to the person next to you and say, God loves you. God loves you. Let's stand up and sing about it. Oh, right on time. We're keeping your offerings. That's how that works. <laughs>